welcome everyone to the Reflex Blue Show. I'm your host, Donovan Beery, and I have with me from Arizona, Prescott Perez Fox. How's it going, Prescott? All right, good to see you. And I think last time we, we spoke in person, which was about a decade ago, maybe the only time we spoke in person, you, you were living in New York, but we actually spoke in Arizona. So it's, it's, a, it's a small world. Things, yes. things are crazy. <laughs> there and back again, a hobbit's tale. So yeah, I, I spent, I guess it was about 13 years in New York as, as the start of my career. You know, that happened. <laughs> Not only is it still 2021, the pandemic year, and a lot of people are leaving big cities like New York and Boston, Washington. But I, I reached a point in my life where it made sense to, to move to a different part of the country and uh, take a different sort of role. And it's very peculiar leaving New York. And I think a lot of folks have done it. I mean, Armin did, of course, have done it. And he- And he by left. folks, we're talking about, we're talking designers mostly. We're not, I mean, obviously lots of people leave New York. Yeah. And lots of people move there, but we're talking just in, in the design, the graphic design world. Yeah, right. At least for the referencing. Like if I, I mentioned someone yeah. like, oh, Sheila Rosenberg left New York. Like, wait, who is that? Like, yeah. I, I just know. <laughs> but it, that's always a peculiar thing because you say, are you leaving for, for greener pastures? You know, is it a, a lifestyle thing or is there like a real world-class opportunity or are you just bored? You know, the, you do, there's only so much of this like waiting in line for a restaurant and elbowing your way to the front of the Trader Joe's queue and those type of things just wear you out after a while. Now, did you actually leave pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? No, it was before the pandemic. It was 2018. So okay. I've been here about, I guess, uh, not quite three years yet. Yeah, because I assume that people who've left in the last year or moved there in the last year, it's, it's a completely different experience than you're talking about. Yeah. Well, so maybe, again, everyone's talking about how the pandemic is the catalyst, but all of the economic shocks and all these societal shocks, like that was all there. It just... It's now, it's now accelerated. It's now put into sharp relief. So all the reasons to leave New York, uh, namely you can't afford rent and the subway is broken. You know, now you say well, the subway will also give you an incurable respiratory disease and you've also lost your job. Like, you know, that just makes it that much easier to, to hop on that bus or whatever. Now, the, the big question I have to ask then, if you leave New York, don't you just leave design altogether? Because, I mean, that's where everything happens. Like, I don't even know if there's design outside of there. So I'm wondering, like, did you just leave the profession? I mean, that's that's the only reason you'd leave New York, right? You're just leaving the profession. Of course, of course. No, no, I'm still in the mix. Although in my case, I, I underwent a transformation, which is that I'm now a full-time teacher. And so I think a lot of us teach on the side. Uh, you do, if I'm correct. Yeah, I, I teach a... a I took, I took like eight years off and, oh. and, and because of this pandemic, I think enrollment went down a little, so I haven't, I'm teaching currently, Yeah, but, but so yeah, I'll teach a night class. Yeah. A lot of us do. And, and our profession, um, which I think is one of our strengths really is that we have a tight integration between practitioners and instructors, but I'm, I'm in a full-time teaching role now and I'm at Arizona state. That's been its own transition, right? So it's a big move. It's also a new type of job. And then, of course, it's a new workplace. And, you know, three years it might be like, well, come on, get used to it already. But that's higher ed. Things move very slowly. And so, like, all the, well, I don't know, the, the onboarding and, like, even, you know, when you start a job, you pick up, like, all the subtleties and all the politics and everything. That usually happens in, like, six months. Here, it takes three or four years because just of the academic calendar and just the, the, way, that, the way that higher ed works. It's designed to be slow. One of the things I've noticed in higher ed is that nothing happens 
for like 10 weeks at a time. Like once the school year starts, people don't talk, people don't discuss, they don't fix problems. They actually, they actually just, cause they're too busy working. Yeah. So then you have that time off in between classes will be, you know, where the, in, in my case, it's a quarter in your case, it'd be a semester. And all of a sudden then everyone's like emailing and making plans and this and that. And then, and then you think things are moving. Then all of a sudden it just grinds to nothing again, because it's like, Oh no, every, everyone's teaching now they're busy. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely get a sprint and recover mentality. And I guess it's, it's, it's cyclical, but it's also opposite where you have the doing and the planning. And I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're going to have a big semester or sorry, a big like curriculum retreat, but that would take place over the summer. If you're not in the middle of the semester, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. But yeah, it, that can be very odd to deal with because you'll like, for example, you'll approach an issue and you raise a topic and you say, Hey, here's an idea. What if we, I don't know, what if we got rid of the textbook and then use this magazine instead? I don't know. And someone will say, that sounds like a good conversation. Let's talk again in the fall of 2023 about implementing it for the spring of 2025. And you're like, oh, what? What are you talking about? It's just a magazine. Like, you know, the use of time is so baffling to me. And that's something that from the business world, especially as a freelancer, I, I really still have a hard time wrapping my head around future planning to that extent. As a, as a freelancer, you can plan more than three months out most of the time. It, it, it doesn't seem. No, so not, I never had that luxury. I mean, even if I had a three-month gig, you say, okay, this is a three-month gig, unless they decide tomorrow at 10 a.m. that they don't need you anymore. And then it's not. You know, so it was, especially, I don't know if this is a New York thing, but it's very of the minute. And it's a lot of what have you done for me lately, et cetera. All, insert the idiom you like. But then you, you know, you meet people in higher ed and obviously some people are, are literally, it's their job to have this 25 year plan. And they're thinking ahead about land use and, you know, changes in the legislature and big stuff like that, population dynamics. But then even regular faculty, they are kind of thinking in five to seven year chunks, uh, which is, is just new. I think for anyone that's a designer, right? Like think about web design, five years down the road, it could be a different landscape entirely. I mean, five years ago, we were still delivering like layered Photoshop files and Ajax was like the cool thing. And <laughs> now you don't even know what that stands for, right? But they do have, it, and it is weird. We, we talk about this, but I know some certain things do move quickly, especially over this last year. You've had classes were just shut down and went online within one week. Yeah. And they are able to adapt when that is fully needed. And I do know that, that where I teach, they changed the web class and they were moving things around. And then all of a sudden they said, Hey, we're going to bring in one of, one of the adjuncts was like, can I teach XD instead of Photoshop? And it, since it's still in the Adobe creative suite, they're like, I don't see why you couldn't like, just go okay. ahead and do it. But if it wasn't in the Adobe creative suite, it may have been a, why don't we discuss this uh, yes. next year? Totally. Uh, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we resonate with that too at our school. And every school is different, by the way, that reading the landscape of all of higher ed, which is something I try not to do, frankly, <laughs> it, um, it's just so, so much variety. And some, some places sent their folks home and said, everybody is fully remote. Don't come back until, you know, whatever it is, the year after. I think even like Harvard and MIT did that. Some of the prestigious schools, they're like, we're going to go full remote 
for several semesters to come. ASU was, was fully remote that first half of the semester. Uh, so that was 20. And we, we went home on spring break and never came back. And we went fully remote. Um, but then we were back in the fall. And so it was a hybrid system where some folks were in the room with masks on and some folks were on Zoom. And so all the faculty got a very odd experience where it was almost like you're you know, hosting the BAFTAs or something where you're, you're sort of looking at the audience and looking at the camera and, and you sure. have to narrate yourself. Like there was a lot of, especially you have a lapel mic clipped on or whatever. So you actually have to like narrate what's happening. You say, I am now going to the laptop to load up an image. Give me one second. And, you know, cause otherwise it would just look like weird kind of dead air and people listening remotely would be like, what's he doing? And so those are some weird things that had to, you had to adapt very quickly to that new reality. We've been remote in the classes I've teach since it, this started. And I've only, I've only taught, this is only my second class I've taught since, since it's begun. But some of the other schools around here have done that where they've gone both or they've gone all, yeah. all in person. And it's just weird to see how every, every place is handling it a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We, we have a family friend who um, her daughter goes to Colgate. I think it's in Hamilton, New York. It's in some small upstate New York town. And apparently that town like just doesn't have COVID. They, they have just have no cases in that whole little college town. And because oh. it's, because it's so isolated, they just, they get tested frequently and everybody's very careful, but they just keep going like normal because no one is, is uh, testing positive. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I don't know what's in the water up there, but <laughs> yeah, but do your thing. Um, but we should clarify too, for folks who are not in the educating business that there's, there's sort of two types of online classes in the university system. I mean, forget about Coursera and whatever else, but you have live online classes, which is essentially on Zoom. And it's, it meets at an appointed hour and it's, uh, you know, there's also homework or whatever, but it's, it's live. And then there's also the asynchronous or the not live where it's, it's kind of a correspondence class and folks can... They can be in multiple time zones. They can be in different countries even. Like I've had folks on military bases in Japan and they're on, you know, 13 hours ahead or whatever it is. And, and that's there, there's no requirement to turn up live, but also it allows folks a lot of flexibility to handle it how they want to. And so you have a lot of weekend warriors too, where you don't hear a peep from them until Saturday when they, you know, clear their desk and, and sort of get to work. Yeah. And, and we're teaching both ways. You know, i I'm teaching, I taught one way before, I'm teaching another way now. So I think they call it online or remote mm. is what the difference is. They'd started to have the online. They'd never done the remote, which is where you actually meet live, but I guess remotely. Sure. <laughs> and they are completely different. They're completely different. The one way it's almost like design, you know, it's like getting a degree by mail. You, yeah. you may never see your, see your teacher. You may never see, you know, you just, you go online and you read the things and you hand things in and that's it. Yeah. And it's funny because, I mean, this is like very obvious thing that took me 30 something years to learn <laughs> that like everyone's different, you know? So I miss the, the interaction, the human aspect of it. I, I like being in the room quite literally and just, just winking and nudging and, and getting that, that shorthand with a group of people. And that's either coworkers or students, right? And some people are like, this is, this is awful. I hate coming here. I hate looking at your faces. 
I hate having to speak up in front of a room. I just want the book and the assignment and leave me alone. And, and by the way, that also applies for faculty. Like they are very content to just occasionally write an email to the class and then just be a silent clerk behind the scenes. Because I, I was explaining the explaining how this worked to my wife. How, you know, hey, I'm going to teach this. This sounds going to work. She's like, mm. that sounds terrible. <laughs> and I said, for me, it probably would be. But but you know, I just talked about some of the people that have worked with me before, and I said, you know, these like these people that worked with me before, they would probably thrive in that system. They wanted they you know they just they love design. They're very self motivated. They just you know, they might need an assignment to like learn, but they, they're like, I can take it from here. I'm yeah. like, so, so like these people would have thrived. And it's very interesting too, because I think that that really transitions us right into this new economy or whatever, whatever we're calling it that, right. I mean, you, you know, you run a web design studio in Omaha. I'm sure you have remote clients who don't come into the studio. One of the things I've noticed with this whole pandemic is, and I knew it before I really yeah. did how, how physically often I see my clients is not very often at all. Right. I was like, I think, I think maybe I saw a client like once a month and now I'm like, maybe I didn't even see him that often because, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's part of it is the economy's shifted. Like we've seen them less and less, but just getting a client to come to your office over before this started the last few years, everyone is on skeleton staffs. They're like, mm-hmm. I don't have time to, you know, I need this stuff done, but I don't have time to drive down there to talk and then to drive back. Like I can't leave my office for two hours. Yeah. Makes sense. And they said, well, you can come here, you know, like every now and then. And then, but then they're like, they didn't want to, you don't, they don't like, we don't want to make this a habit. So it's like, you can come here when, when it's something big and it started, that's kind of the impression I always got. Yeah. And so I, you know, we still have an office, but as usual, clients are never here. So <laughs> that part has not changed. Yeah. And it, right. And it's just so much variety from everyone I've spoken to, right? That I, I'm kind of a nerd for this stuff in general, like work as a, as a subject. You know, how, you know how people like study religion as a subject? Yeah. And I, I sort of study work as a subject and not in an academic sense. I'm just, you know, reading some books, you know, I do my thing, but some people work remotely and then, and that's just the way it is. And, and I think uh, software developers are kind of like 10 years ahead of designers in this regard. Like the fact that they can use GitHub and, and they can check in code and they can do all this, you know, they can send someone a Slack message at three in the morning and it says, hey, please fork this repo and whatever the language of developers is. And, and they can run a global team that is almost working 24 hours a day, especially if you have people in Asia Pacific region designers you still kind of have to well first of all you can't contribute to like an indesign file in that in those micro segments you can't contribute like a, you have, someone has to close the file someone else has to open it i believe um, it, i believe yeah. you can in quark are you serious <laughs> i think so i believe the only reason quark is still around is because they really push to like doing daily publications in newspapers uh-huh. and i believe that's their big selling point now I couldn't tell you this for sure because I haven't used the software in like it's been a long time. Donkey's been a long time. But but that is they made their software do those things so that because if you're doing a daily newspaper, like try to get rid of us now. You know. (laughs) 
Adobe version Q was uh, an attempt at that back in like CS2 days. Do you remember that? I don't think I know. It was it was a little utility that kind of lived in your in your Mac's toolbar. Yeah. And uh, most people just ignored it, but that's essentially what it was. It was this idea that an individual file, like a PSD file, could be edited and worked on in in sort of increments, and you could you could almost thumb through the different changes by different people, and it was a version control system. I have you know this is almost like they they talk about the paperless office. And I've equate or I've heard it equated to the paperless toilet, where it's like I've heard about it, but I've never seen one myself. And so that's the same thing with version control, with with uh, with rich image rich files. Uh, I've heard of it, but I haven't quite seen it. But developers are ahead of us, and now you're seeing some of the teams that either have a strong workflow or they had a pre-existing strong culture. Um, they're doing fine, and yeah, maybe they miss the pizza and whatever but they're sort of doing fine. And I think other teams are, are flailing a little bit and people are saying, yeah, I'm working remote, but I don't, I don't have one-on-ones with my boss and I don't know where the new projects come from. They just got to sort of appear on my docket. Like there's no conversation anymore and that must be tough too. So there's a lot of empathy going out to everyone in, in the business and, and not just in graphics, but in, in all of the sectors that have been transformed in the last year. But I think some of these ways that we've adapted like zoom calls or doing things like this some of them will hang around yeah even as this clears up because we found what they're actually useful for yeah i could see even if people go back to the office i think it's very likely that a couple days at home will be much more normal than it was absolutely i agree and i think and i think we're getting close i mean we're we're running into vaccines are now cranking up so we'll see yeah no totally and i tell my students that too that it, the idea that that to receive a job offer means getting in your car at 6 a.m. and driving in rush hour traffic, you know, five days a week, like, that's a little bit absurd. It, at least four, you know, that that one day remote is going to be on the table for everyone. Maybe not in your first six months, but like your boss is going to be thinking, hey, can I work three days in the office? And it, it's going to be a reality of a shared model. And I'm, I think offices will return, right? I believe that HQ is important, but we we have shown that there's different strengths and weaknesses to these different uh, ways of working. And especially like, for example, if you're working on a project and you're you you know you're talking to your team, you got your photo people and you got your art directors and whatever, and then you say, okay, I have a big, I, I know what to do. I know what the next step is. I just need to be left alone for one and a half days. And then you're, whoever's in charge might say, okay, then maybe you should work from home for one and a half days. Like, you, you know, you can sort of designate a deep work period of time as opposed to other times where you say, we're at the, we're at the very beginning. We need to be in the room together. We're going to get the post-it notes. We're going to throw around the rubber ball and let the ideas emerge because this is the Genesis moment. So we all have to be here in the HQ. So I think you're going to see that designation if you haven't already. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting, but I think it always changes, and and I think even without a pandemic, some of this stuff would have probably changed a little bit anyway. Yeah, maybe this accelerates some things and stops others, but we'll find out in ten years what you know when people look back and they'll start to analyze it. I'm sure somebody will tell us what really happened. Who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be right back with Prescott. Hey, welcome back. Prescott, you've also have a uh, 
busy creator podcast. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of on a hiatus, like yes. things go. But but where uh, where do people go to find out more about that? So that's at busycreator.com. And let me tell you about this project, right? Because this is a this is almost a therapy moment, right, folks? I started this project in early 2014. And it was kind of a an answer to a question: how does a person transform their situation? And so the easiest way, I suppose is if someone from a uh, someone from on high from a reputable firm just kind of grabs you and says hey kid you're going to the big leagues you know that type of thing and that didn't happen for me so then it was this other question of well can i become a publisher right can i start to retell what i have learned and build connections where i have a few of them and i can build more connections and and help activate people and see if they're going through the same thing and so that's that was really the question and it took this form of a podcast and a blog. And I, I did a couple of workshops. Uh, I, wanna, I don't want to say I didn't get that off the ground, but you know, I never really put as much energy into it as I perhaps could have. And I did that for like three years. You know, I did 100 episodes plus some bonus ones. I started the New York City podcast meetup kind of on the back of that. Got some experience speaking in front of a room. And frankly, you know, speaking in front of a mic and then speaking in front of a room together really prepared me to teach. But ultimately I had to, you know, I took some time off. Like I got to episode 100 and I said, listen, I need a break from this. I've been doing this podcast for three years to meet some great folks. I learned a lot about audio editing, but it's sort of not going anywhere. Never made a dime. I didn't get any gigs. I didn't get any consulting or any, I don't know, job offers, certainly. And, and so I took some time off and I was going to take like 10 weeks off and record 10 new episodes and kind of do you know, season two. Actually, I still have a lot of unrecorded or unedited material in the can there. Sure. And somehow 10 weeks turned into four years, which is a, you know, kind of a shame, but it's also, uh, I think, a, it's very telling, right? That we, we start all these projects, we create people, we have this, whatever, side hustle, sidebar, whatever you want to call it. And we put so much emotion into it, but sometimes it doesn't lead to anything. And so it's a, it, you know, becomes a, an interesting chapter in our story, but it doesn't necessarily lead anywhere. And, and I don't know, I mean, most of the people I know doing podcasts, including myself, we don't really make any money on this. Yeah. But we do learn a lot from it, or I guess we quit doing it. So I, I put, I put what I can into this, but I put very little into it, or I would have stopped doing this a long time ago, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm always like, man, I could put more into this. I'm like, or I would just, not be doing it. So I guess, I guess this is, this is my compromise to myself. Sure. But maybe the, uh, maybe I missed the big detail there is that the hiatus really overlapped with one of the most difficult periods of my life, which was that I was out of work for a period of time. And so here I am having a show about design and productivity and, you know, creative thinking and all these other things. And meanwhile, I'm just dying inside because I can't find a, a job or even a gig, which was very kind of strange. Like even as a freelancer, I couldn't, I couldn't even find like, you know, a two week project. And so the, the idea of the side project, I think is predicated on the main project that you have your job, which allows you to create a rhythm in life. And then you can go home and dedicate a few hours a week to, to something quirky. But if that's the only thing you have, maybe you're putting too much emphasis on it. Maybe you're just not emotionally right in the head um, because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like it sucks being out of work and especially in a field that you, that you really love and you've put a lot into and you, 
you know, you're at all the conferences and you're reading the books and all this stuff. And then you just like, can't find a, a job, like what? So that's part of the story of the busy creator too, is that it overlapped with this transitional period in my life. Yeah, as a work of craft, sorry, let me just wrap this up. Yeah. As a work of craft, I'm still very proud of that. I go to the website. I still think it looks handsome. I listen to some of those episodes occasionally. I'll, for some reason, I, you know, I'm like, wait, I talked about that. Let me, let me go listen and find out what I was saying. I still think the episodes are really great conversations. I learned a lot about interviewing and about, well, really just like setting up questions and, and speaking to folks and audio editing. So as a work of craft, I think it's still, still a fine portfolio piece, but as a, as a business lesson, it still hurts a little bit that I couldn't make anything come from it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think our, you know, when we started this podcast, our ideas, I don't remember what they were, but they started shifting once we, we did it. Cause we're like, Oh, well that maybe that's not realistic, but there's other stuff that did come about. We're like, Oh, didn't see that coming. Yeah. So we just had to completely shift what our expectations were and just kind of changed. And then, and then we've done well, the yeah. weird now, now, as far as not having work, I mean, what was it two weeks ago, at least from this recording from today, actually two weeks from today, March 5th was my 19th year in running my own business. And so we've never really been more than two people or two full-time people here. So I don't know if we've ever not had work, but we've had some months where it, there's not really enough work. Yeah. So like, I mean, there's a, like, I, I don't, I don't know if we've ever had like, where we look at the end of the month and we're like, Oh, we have zero, but we've had things where like, yeah, that's not enough to keep things going. Right. So, <laughs> so that goes and the, and the weird part is and this shifts every year, but usually you get like most of your work comes in in like the spring and the fall. I think people take time off during the summer, like your clients, especially mm -hmm. if you do like mm -hmm. business to business work. So they're, they're like, oh, they're taking a break. So thus your work goes down. And then in the, in the holidays, people take a lot of time off. And so your work goes down. Not always, but this is kind of a general thing. And so it's weird because the conferences would be like in the summer. Back when they were in the summer, now they've kind of moved them, I think, to spring or fall. Mm -hmm. And you go to the conferences and you hear about this. And it was that same thing where you're like, man, I'm feeling like I got no work. Yeah. And it was always during that time period. You're like, man. Like I got nothing. It was always during those, those months. So. Yeah. Conferences are funny because, and again, this goes back to education. Like I, I am a, uh, an audio learner, like a, the lecture format actually works for me. And, and that goes to conferences and Ted talks and documentary films and like all the formats of someone speaking at me uh, that actually works for me. So I really like for, uh, lectures and, or sorry, conferences, meetups, what you name it. But yeah, there's sometimes this idea of like, well, just look at the numbers. There's one person on stage and 500 in the audience. So there's a power dynamic and there's a kind of um, success gradient where the person on the stage is the exalted one and, and you plebeians are in the seats. Oh. <laughs> you know? And so that's the trick about, I think when conferences come back to real life, how are we going to program them a little bit differently so that the person on stage is offering tremendous value that isn't just bragging, right? Because I think we've all had a conference session or two where we're like, oh, this guy just wants to tell us about how awesome he is. You know what I'm saying? I, and and I think I've been, I've noticed that change over the last 10 years a little bit anyway. 
-hmm. like a lot more of the conferences they've the speakers have been more about a topic rather than i guess a show and tell right where i haven't seen but but every now and then you get someone whose work is great and you're like i just want i just want to show and tell yeah Yeah. i just i actually just want to see their work because it's amazing you know and so so but i think i've kind of noticed that shift anyway and i maybe that is because I think a lot of it is because if you want to see awesome work, it's so easy to find anyway. You don't need to go to a conference for that. Yeah, no, 100%. And I mean, please, I'm still a creative person. I love seeing other work. And especially if it's behind the scenes or if it's the process and you see all the sketches and early pitches and things. And and that's kind of like the first round conference, you know, uh, Armin and Bryony's like second project. That's what it's all about. It's seeing the things that don't get published and seeing how the sausage was made, so to speak. And that, that is really valuable because we that's a lot of the things that we can take back to our own practices. Yeah, and I've heard, I heard, I talked to someone who went to their uh, that conference and they said that was amazing. I think they mm-hmm. went to the first year they did it where they got to actually hear the sales, pe- the sales pitch. Yeah. And I think one of the takeaways I was told from it was, well, what you need to do is hire somebody with like a good English accent to do your sales pitches because that immediately made them sound better. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a funny cultural observation, right? If you have the one Englishman in your office, it's perceived that like your whole agency is is slightly <laughs> exalted and and worldly. I don't know if that's still true, but we'll, you know that is. Let's see if I can affect one for my next pitch. I have to walk around. <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> Just got, but of course, knowing me, I'll, I'll you know, like the only accent I can do is like. Yorkshire or something that's that doesn't have the currency yeah anyways all right all right well we're going to be right back with Prescott Perez Fox hey Prescott where do people go to see your work like your your non-teaching work you're at Arizona State University um but where if if people want to like follow you other than like the busy creator Mm -hmm. so perezfox.com is my website and that is my portfolio site. So that's like a valid place. I am on social media, but I, I don't post a lot of work on social media and maybe I should get better at that. Um, right. Cause again, the case studies from these conferences, you see people who are just like, oh, I just put my stuff up there. And next thing you know, and I'm like, damn it. That is, that's a good point. <laughs> so I, I enjoy social media. I talk politics a lot. You know, here's a funny thing. Let me put this out there. Instead of joining me on like Twitter and follow me on Pinterest. Like that would be fun if a bunch of people started commenting on my my Japanese furniture and and hand-drawn logos or whatever it is on Pinterest now. There's, there's a lot of home stuff too because I bought a house yeah. in the past year. So like let's connect on Pinterest, which is a, a creative outlet to begin with. And I'm I'm not actually on Pinterest at all. Oh. I think we signed up for a while. I tried it and I'm like, this isn't this isn't for me. I can barely keep up with the other ones. So I just right. find that do the social media that you are drawn to. Yes. That's my advice to people if or designers, because you're going to come off more natural there. Mm-hmm. And if, if it's not a fit, you just never, I don't know. It yeah. just seems weird. I know people that do a lot of like illustration or hand lettering. They do great on dribble because they're sketching all the time and, yeah. and yeah. putting sketches up on dribble, especially if you have talent is always a great thing. Yeah, but Instagram I'm like, as well. It's visual first. Yeah. And so so that makes sense. But I'm like, because someone asked me, they're like, oh, you should be on like Instagram. I'm like, I'm not going to post this. Like, uh, it's not. 
No, totally. The stuff I would post isn't going to do well there. It's a challenge. You're definitely not the first person to identify this, that some, some formats work better for some projects. And so you have um, like Instagram, for example, we're on the topic. It's very snackable. It's very easy to share a book cover or a poster design or a logo. And, you know, before and after there's like you scroll left and there's like the before, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. It's very difficult to show a year long e-commerce case study, like boiled down into six images that someone can just thumb through while they're you know, riding the bus. Right. Same thing with like brand identity. It, it doesn't always fit into one JPEG. And I've struggled with that. I know there are branding folks that do really well, but it, then it comes down to this idea, like you said, about what's natural for you and how much time, because, you know, my students struggle with this too, that they're, they grew up with social media, but they, they've sort of seen the dangers of it. Well, they're not as addicted as, as we are, as my generation, Gen Y, whatever we're calling it. Oh, I think you, you, you if you're Gen Y, then you're, they, they renamed that like millennials. Huh. Okay. But Don't I think started. <laughs> the reason they redid that though, because I was, well, because I'm Gen X. Yeah. And so, and that came from some story or something. So Gen Y, I think was a, a natural thing. And the, the, the behind that was Gen Z. And eventually they're like, they're not just you know, nobody wants to follow Gen X, I guess. So it's because technically that gener your generation came of age or graduated around the turn of the millennium. Yeah. That, I mean, that's where the yeah. term comes from. No, definitely. I know. And I'm 1999. So I'm like, nope, it wasn't just under the wire. <laughs> but, but you, you, yeah. So you, you came of age right at that time. So yeah, you, you can't, you can't deny that. It's right. I mean, I, I don't know. I always say, I'm like, Hey, crank up that Natalie Merchant CD and ride off into the sunset. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, those cultural references are unique to our, anyway, <laughs> social media, right? I tell folks, I'm like, listen, there's no way to just command attention and fame. Like, I don't have the formula. I don't know if there is a formula, but if you're putting out your stuff in general, eventually it will lead to this body of work. And that's like, we're talking about with the podcast, right? that it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not just speaking to folks in the industry. It does become a body of work over time. And you have, in my case, a hundred episodes, you have at least three or four times that many that starts to become valuable. And you can, you can look back and observe trends and you can republish things in different formats. And so it's always valuable to have that body of work, even if it's on social media, even if it's a body of jokes on Twitter that didn't quite land in the moment, next thing you know, it's, it's formed a little bit of a personality. It's formed a body of work. I think that body of jokes on Twitter has gotten a lot of people in trouble over the years. That's true. That's, <laughs> I think geez. that's because they, they probably weren't appropriate jokes. Yeah. It's also because people don't know how to read jokes out of context. Like that's, that's that, a big one. Like, right. If you're a comedian and you're posting 14 times a day and someone sees it like nine years later, you've got to realize each one of those only got a very little amount of planning and attention i uh, i don't when when comedians get in hot water for things that they said 10 years ago i i am always like that that's kind of their job yeah well right that's you know, it and, and they it may not be a joke they would make now but but whatever they but i'm like i don't i don't i'm sure it's not as big of a deal as what they probably think it is yeah. most of the time most of the time right and actually not to get too political but al franken wrote in him one of his books, I don't remember which one, Giant of the Senate, maybe. It was like, he talked about all these like confirmation hearings and all this kind of weird stuff. And 
and people would read him either excerpts from his book or like sketches from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and, but they would read it in this like utterly deadpan, you know, not just political machinations, but they're, they're the opposition. So they're trying to like stick him up. Yeah. And he's like, listen, guys, I'm a, I was a comedian. Like that's the whole thing is satire and you're reading it straight, but also you're reading it in a way that just sucks all the context and all the life out of it. And I think, I think he called it the, I don't know, the D comedifier. So he made up like a term for that. He's like, you put it through this machine where nothing becomes funny on the other side. And when you're dealing with actors or like Saturday Night Live skits, yeah, they even though that person said it, they're playing a character that they may not yeah. have even written. Right. No, totally. And um, there's clips of Obama. I mean, if if, if you watch like uh, Django Unchained and you read um, Leonardo DiCaprio, the words he said in that movie, he would look like the worst person ever. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. And that's I mean that's a fiction, but even Obama, there's clips of Obama from his first audiobook, like saying the n-word and and talking about cocaine and all this other stuff and he's actually quoting like a guy that he grew up with like he's you know what i'm saying yes he's reading his audiobook but right. he's not the one saying it and so they'll they'll bring out that clip and they'll say oh look at him he's endorsing cocaine it's like oh come on folks like, so that's the world we live in i suppose and maybe hopefully hopefully uh, there's a there's a reality of mutually sure destruction that anyone who's 40 now probably already has a body of, of work that they'd like to forget a few items and say, okay, that JPEG, whatever, was really cheeky when I cut out that guy's head and put it on that other guy, but let's not do that anymore. And right. Or if it's a tweet that doesn't go well, or I don't know, even if it's just a boneheaded moment, like that maybe most famously, do you remember the Batman shooting in Aurora, Colorado? That I guy do. had yeah. yeah, tragic event, of course. And Aurora was trending on Twitter for obvious reasons. It was in the news. And then Kim Kardashian was like, oh, everyone must be talking about my new Aurora perfume. Oh, it, my. Yeah. And, and of course, they pulled it down and apologized. But like that stuff lives on. And there's there's screenshots of that. You know, it's like, wow, read the room, folks. So. Let's try and do less of it, but also let's have a little empathy for weird situations like that that happen. And then when you were looking at it 10 years ago, understand. Who knows what's going to come out of this year? I mean, yeah. you got to give even, I think you even got to give more empathy if you're like, I think people are like, oh, that happened in 2020. Yeah, well, every, no one was in a right spot. No, no totally. One, no, none of us were doing well. Yeah. And I've already used the phrase, I plead the 2020th. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So let me ask you, what what are you seeing? I mean, aside from the one year kind of tragedy that we're going through, like what are some of the trends you're seeing in web design or in on the internet in general, maybe that I should be aware of as a teacher? I don't I don't really keep up with trends the best, but I have uh -huh. noticed that I think a lot of companies have taken their websites more seriously than they were before. And maybe mm. not the huge companies, like obviously Amazon's always kept their, you know, they've always known that their website is like the most important thing. I'm just talking like smaller shops. All of a sudden, just having a web presence, they realize, oh, people, we need to be able to be found. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think, I think there's just been this even more, you know, every year it's more accepted, but now it's just, oh, we know we actually need to use this. Yeah. Well, that's a trend. It's a business trend, not a aesthetic trend. Right. Which is all good. 
aesthetic trend, here's funny enough, a lot of my students are now discovering like synth wave and 80s revival and everything looks like Miami Vice. And, you know, I'm sitting there 40 years old and I'm like, yo, this is totally like that. Do you, do you remember that whatchamacallit ad from like 1989? It's sounding you know, familiar. Hershey's it's, whatchamacallit. It's a candy bar. But oh, it yeah. had this, this very like pop culture, Memphis school kind of animation, which led to the Saved by the Bell aesthetic, which of course ended up as the 2012 Olympics. And <laughs> and my students are like discovering that for the first time. And they're really into into that synthwave theme and they're really into like James White, you know, signal noise. I don't know if you've spoken to him on the show. I um, have not. He's got a really exemplary style in in that fashion. But yeah, business trends. I think, like you said, it's funny that everyone now is, they had to scramble super quick to become an e-commerce platform. And like every restaurant now had to offer delivery and online orders or even places that were cash only. Now they have to take contactless payments because no one wants to touch cash. <laughs> and again, these rapid changes. So it's really interesting that you bring that up. And those things, I think, well, those will hold on. Those are yeah. the trends that, you know, obviously we may start using cash again, but the mm. percentage of cash we use is not going to be the same as it was before. Yeah, yeah. It's going to, and it's going to permanently drop. I know. And I was, um, I was a, a long convert. It took me a while to get into like contactless payments. Like I didn't have my credit card in my Apple phone or anything. I still that, don't, I'm, I'm still holding out on that one. Yeah, but with the, I don't know, the avoidance of like touching physical things, I, I gave it a try like last year. I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty neat. And you know, you're at the supermarket, you can, you can check out while the person is still like bagging up your groceries. And then when the total comes through, it's like already paid for. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> so, you know, of course the technology is from like 2008. And so that's, Maybe I'm old enough that I can be a little bit behind the trend sometimes. It took me a long time also to. to I'm have just behind that trend because it's so easy that it's it's so much easier to just spend money that way, and so oh, right, right. so I, I'm behind the trend purposely because adding the pain points to make it harder to spend money for yourself means you spend a little bit less. That yeah, no, one hundred percent. And I think people on a budget definitely they've used that cash in the envelope. I've been fortunate. I never had to do that for things like groceries, um, but no, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, but another thing that took me a while to get into, and now it's like I live with it every day, is that the TVs that have uh, smart technology, they have apps. Like I have a Roku powered TV and it has a Netflix button. And so I pick up the remote. I don't even have to push the power button. I just push the Netflix button. And I'm like, you know what? I used to, I used to connect a, like a laptop to the TV and I'm like, this is actually pretty neat that you don't need to connect a laptop or a PlayStation or something else. We have we have the Fire TV and it's similar. And we got the four yeah. buttons on it. So it's got the HBO button, the Netflix button. But the thing that drives me mad is the other buttons are, it's like the Sony Blue something. Oh, yeah. Whatever that, that's no longer in existence. Right, right, right. And oh, and then I think there's an Amazon Prime button, which which is fine. Yeah. But I'm like, I wish I could just reprogram these. Yes. Couldn't I make this this one button to hit Disney Plus or something? Because yeah. the service isn't even there anymore. But that's I'm sure common. I'm sure they got money to place that button on there. Yeah, that's a common observation. And I know it's like, hey, can I have the CompuServe button removed, please? Like no one's <laughs> yeah, no one's on that anymore. And and that's so funny. So many like social media networks have come and gone. Like imagine if your computer keyboard had a had a MySpace button or had a, a pounce button or all those other things. And Ask right Jeeves. 
Yeah. And I mean, but not even that old. Like, do you remember before, what was it? I, I guess Facebook, they didn't have images. It was just text. And then there was a company called FriendFeed that had images flowing through your timeline. And it was like a game changer because you, you know, people could post photos. And, or maybe it was Twitter that didn't have images, one of them. And then, you know, friend feed got folded into one of those other companies. I don't know. So imagine if there was a friend feed button on your, <laughs> on your keyboard, like that would be <laughs> kind of funny. But yeah, no, I've watched a lot of television this past year. I hate to admit. And I mean, I like to think I'm multitasking a little bit that I'm, I, I read while I watch TV and I also like thumb through Pinterest and, and do other things, but, and I work sort of, I don't tell, don't tell my administration, like I, I'll sometimes be grading and I'll have a, a program on on the side watching either YouTube videos or usually not a scripted drama that I have to follow. And yeah, there's an, there's an art form to finding the right shows to watch when you're, when you're working or grading or yes. any of those elements yes. because you're like, I want, I want to watch something because I need to distract myself sometimes or I want to kind of not fully pay attention to this because it'll drive me mad. Yeah. Especially if you're doing like production work, but it's also that thing where what can I watch that also isn't going to distract me from this? Yeah. Uh, there's a few things. I mean, definitely nonfiction, right? So I like to watch a lot of DIY programs uh, on, on YouTube, especially these carpentry videos and metalworking videos. And some of it's like white noise, right? Like the guy's using a, a lathe and it's, it's literally this machine noise is just whirring. Yeah. And and so it is definitely like a bit of a white noise, but then they'll stop with the commentary and say, okay, now I'm going to change parts and go in a 45 degree angle. You just take a quick look and you, you sort of understand what he's working on. Plus it's also, I don't know if you you have this as well, that if somebody is also being productive, like there's a guy like, you know, building a fence in a video and you hear that air gun going, you're like, I, I got to get back to work. I got to do something productive. <laughs> so, oh, you know, like, maybe, maybe I'll give that a try. Next time I'm going to run, I'll give that a try. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of zen too, to watch someone like build something with time-lapse photography and they're like putting up a whole barn in 18 minutes and you're sitting there like trying to grade papers. You're like, okay, I got to do this faster. <laughs> so, so, let me, so let me get this right. I kerned this logo and in the same time, this guy built like 13 houses. Great. Yeah. I'm feeling well, pretty worthless now. The magic of video editing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, here's no real tip, real tip. There is on YouTube. Well, first of all, the best money I've ever spent is YouTube premium subscribership, which is um, like $12 a month to okay. remove the ads. And let me tell you, I live a lot better life without interrupted ads on YouTube, but there's a lot of programs that are like full length. So you can get grand designs, I think it's called And it's like, it's like an architecture program in Australia and New Zealand. And it's really cool. It's, you know, these kind of one hour sure. documentary style shows where they, where they meet a couple who's building a house and then something goes wrong and then they, you know, eventually get it done. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating to see some of those type of programs. Um, this old house has a lot of full episodes on YouTube. And uh, so things like that, I, I, I like to watch. Okay. Well, Prescott, we really thank you for your time and hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Yeah, man. Great chatting with you. I'm glad to be on the show and, and I invite folks to connect with me. Um, so I'd love to hear from other people who heard this episode and, and want to chat a bit. Is it, is it the friend feed? Is that how they connect or what was <laughs> yes. that? What was hit that? Hit the, MySpace. What you do is you hit the friend feed MySpace button on your keyboard and then you'll find Prescott right there. Yeah. No, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Scott Perez Fox is my handle on most things. Twitter and Instagram, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. 
and then just the website. So if you if you write me an email, I'll write you back. Like I'm, I spend a lot of time at the computer. I'm afraid, but uh, yeah, seriously, I would love love to hear from people, hear what you're working on and what you're watching on YouTube as well. It sounds great. Cheers. The Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Beery is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dust Lab.